Hello and welcome to System Mastery, the podcast where we beat a dead horse, no dice whatsoever at a time. Yes, we just beat the dead horse over and over again. We beat that dead horse and then beat that dead horse some more. Because it's Amber Diceless, a game where everything's made up and the points don't matter. Except that not even an army of Collins Mockery or Wayne's Most Brady could save this turd. It's System Mastery. John, before we get started today, we have one of them, their announcement masteries. Great. I know this is going to be a longer episode, so all I'm going to say before we get into the actual ad itself is you can get these by going to our website, systemmasterypodcast.com, and by giving us $75 at the Give Us Some Money button. With that, let's get started. Today, we're going to be talking about Eventide, made by a friend of the show and a, and, and a longtime listener and supporter uh, out of Cape Town, South Africa. Ooh. Yeah. I've never been, but uh, my girlfriend has, and she says it's lovely. This time of year. <laughs> uh, the game is called Eventide, and I've got a quick description of it. It starts right here. How and why the world as we know it came to be changed forever has been long forgotten. It's been hundreds, maybe even thousands of years. Maybe even hundreds of thousands of years. Maybe it's even it. tens. <laughs> maybe ones of years. <laughs> maybe it's been a day. Uh, since anyone, anyone even spoke of the cataclysm or the time that came before and the memories of that world that once was faded into dust to the people inhabiting the world of eventide. This isn't a post cataclysmic world. It's just the world that is and the world that always was as far back as anyone living in it can remember. So uh, the company that brought you Karma, Something Wicked and Children of the Fall brings you Eventide, a game of apocalyptic survival horror in a wasteland beyond time. Yeah, all right. Yeah, sounds cool. And this is everything you get if you buy the game, which you can purchase on DriveThruRPG right now for the low, low cost of $14.99 for the PDF. You get fast and dynamic rules for role-playing in the apocalypse, robust, classless character creation, optional tribe creation rules for group play, a full campaign setting, including many detailed settlements and NPCs, dozens of inspiring adventure seeds, 17 tribes complete with unique beliefs, structures, affiliations, and NPCs. A bestiary containing 35 ruthless and terrifying enemies, plus two friendly ones. Oh, it's like the deja vu showgirls of bestiaries. <laughs> Hundreds of terrifying creatures and three nice ones. <laughs> a hardcore mode. Rules variants for brave players in search of a brutal challenge. Lone Wanderer, solitaire rules for solo adventures in the wastelands, and an apocalypse toolkit, tools and generators to assist GMs in running their games dynamically. In addition, there's a vast diaspora of digital extras available, including the Eventide Player's Guide, uh, separate character vehicle and tribe sheets, a high-quality Eventide map, a 4K wallpaper pack featuring six beautiful wallpapers and one ugly one, <laughs> and a print-and-play initiative tracker deck. So uh, it sounds like a cool role-playing game to me. I've got a copy of it here. Uh, I'm going to definitely start reading. I just didn't want to read anything at the same time as I was reading this week's book. Well, yeah, obviously, because this <laughs> week's book was rife with nonsense. And also, I mean, if you don't get the book, you can always go to a different wasteland outside of time, Ohio. <laughs> a perfect joke for all of our Cape Town listeners. <laughs> 
All right. So once again, I want to thank the folks over at Frenzy Kitty Games for supporting us here at System Mastery and for purchasing this ad read for Eventide, a game that sounds super cool to me and available right now at DriveThroughRPG.com. You'll find links in the show description and we'll post them on Twitter. Thanks and let's get to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's me, your host, Jeff, joined as always by the other host of the show, John. And John, how are you this day? Ah, this day I find myself in good spirits, yea verily. Ah, please don't. I've had enough of that for the rest of my life. You see, for tis my goal to travel yon to good health and spirits. Ah, you strike at me basely. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Okay, so, yeah, we're doing Amber Diceless. God, can I just say, we have been asked to do this for years now. I mean, like, since we started this, people have been saying, like, oh, Amber Diceless. And some of those people have seemed to recommend it because they think it is good. Those people are wrong. <laughs> yeah, this is a this one hurts. This hurt because I, I, I'm I'm a huge fan of the author of this. He, his work was really cool, uh, and, and unfortunately, he passed away kind of tragically. So, I mean, it's Eric Wooshik. So we'd know him from very early in our own show's history because he wrote the Buffy the Vampire Slayer RPG that was like episode two, and after and, the bomb, and we liked those. Yeah, no, being so heavily tied into Palladium, of course, mm-hmm. it's a name that pops up for us a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And a name that I've up until now, I have always associated with, you know, competence. Workmen like competence. I mean, I I still say this game is competent. It just is a competent production of a product that I absolutely do not want. (laughs) So I guess I I probably go there. That said, even then, this book is chock full of DM advice. Oh, that's all there is. John Wick play dirty level of garbage. Well, yeah, because you have a game that's like, well, there's no dice, and we barely have rules, so most of this is just going to be examples of play and me telling you how you should play. Yeah, and don't forget, there's definitely a lot of room carved out to tell to constantly exonerate the uh, the person and works of Roger Zelizny. Oh, yeah. I think right at the start. Is it John Zelizny and Roger Dean? I forget. No, it's Roger Zelizny. Okay, yeah. we're fine. I would say, just from the get-go... One of the things that you notice in here that I I believe ends up being to this book's detriment mm-hmm. is how much he loves the Amber books. Yes, that is definitely true. This is equal parts. I, I, I mean, it's so pretentious about those books. There's so many times in this book where he'll be like, well, rather than me telling you what 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 uh, Corwin is like, why don't I let the genius himself describe? In why the, don't we refer to the bard? Mm, there's uh, there's one quote by Zelizny that's one of the many things that the main character of his Amber series, Corwin, is saying in description of himself that is in this book three times. Also, there are so many times when he's like, why don't I just let the book speak for itself? And then the passage is completely useless most of the passages he quotes are just corwin describing people 
So it, it, every time he cuts to someone, it's either a description of a mysterious, inscrutable event happening. So it'll be things like, remember when the storm came and the ravens also, and then the dream happened. And after that, there were many problems. And then they just move on as if that explained anything. And the rest of them are just like clad in silver and black with features like mine, but heavier. He was potentially a strong man, though many did not know. You're like, what the fuck? Come on. That isn't helpful. Uh I, God, I feel like I've been betrayed by this book because it has been on this shelf for so long. Yeah. And I had such hopes for it. Well, notably, we we managed to get to a different, the only other game I know of that uses Diceless in its marketing material and, like, name before we got to this. And I always kind of assumed before I read Marvel Diceless that there was a connection between the two. That somehow Marvel was based on Amber? Yeah. that, that At least system-wise? Exactly. Well, possibly because I had never heard of the Amber series of books. Yes. That, Popping this book open, I was like, oh, Amber was an actual book series? Mm-hmm. Huh. I just thought Amber was like, that's the name of the system, is yeah. Amber Diceless. Yeah, it's the name of the engine. Now, I've known for quite a while that that wasn't the case, just because I did some research after we did the Marvel book, just to make sure for myself that no, there are no connections between the two. But now that I've actually read it, it is much more apparent, because the Marvel book, as bad as that one kind of was, I remember not liking it very much, at least it had a reason to be Diceless. It was Diceless, so you could use a bidding-based mechanic instead uh, and a little bit of like bluffing and interaction and and, and uh, maintenance, like like uh, you had to hoard your power tokens so you could use them in big attacks and stuff. Well, you still had mechanics to play with. Yes. they just weren't dice. Yeah. Whereas Amber is, it's not just Amber diceless; it's Amber mechanicless. Yes, it there's isn't... no tokens, there's no cards, dice, anything that you could use to have a mechanical play. Hmm is essentially gone outside of making a character with your character points, and then once you've made your character, that's about it. Yeah, so why don't we start with, and the, you know, I'll go ahead and say it, I'm I'm a little bit concerned about the potential of this being another Stormbringer situation. Oh, where we just make everyone angry because we're like, hey, did you know that this thing you love and remember fondly is bad? Well, yeah, specifically that it's a thing where we've never, neither one of us had ever even heard of that novel series, and yet here we are only knowing anything about the novel series through the lens of a book written about it by an, by an avowed super fan that ultimately is kind of a failure. Thing is, I came out of this feeling more positive about the Amber book series mm. than I did about the Elric ones. That's fair. I can see that. Um, the, I don't personally agree just because the, uh, the the writing style of just the quotes that we get constantly of Zelizny's work comes out to me as just kind of like stilted old fantasy writing of the kind that I routinely try my best to avoid. Yeah. But then again, that's a, that's a place where you and I differ. For example, I made it three paragraphs into the wheel of time books before I was like, <laughs> before I was like, Nope, thank you. And goodbye. There are how there's how much more of this an ungodly amount you say. <laughs> yeah. And God, the first book is the one that's like, Oh, this moves at a very good clip. Just you wait until we're five books in. And he's like, this is 5,000 pages about one day. Most of it is nobles names. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, so for my tolerance for fantasy books written in the V thou style is very, very low. And I can tell right away that I'm not going to want to read this, especially because well, the back half of the book is just a list of all the NPCs from the world uh, in various formats, because he just loves making these characters over and over again and then giving them to us. Yeah. Um, and every one of them is some fucking 
dorky looking Arthurian white dude or their hot girlfriend. And I'm just like, fuck, save me from this monotony. That's fair. That's fine. Yeah. You don't need to like the series. I mean, I don't know if I would like the series, but I'm saying definitely came off from the book going, I can at least understand why someone would like this series. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. The reason I'm laying my cards on the table and saying things like I didn't even make it into the second chapter of a Wheel of Time novel or whatever is to let people know where my bona fides lie with fantasy novel writing. I do not care for the vast majority of it. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Just put that out there. I like some of it. I like Alan Dean Foster's work just fine. There's a few other authors I can think of who I I don't mind reading their stuff. Um, But... You know, this is the, the, this is a, in that vein of too much for me. Anyway, um, to describe the world, Amber is okay. So uh, the thing is, it's a book about gods, and essentially they don't call themselves that, but that's so. Mostly, you're describing a giant cosmology to get started. Like you have to do like an in the beginning there was chaos, and the chaos lords arose from chaos, and they were they were much weird and changey. Oh yeah, and chaotic, and then I mean, it's it's not too weird i mean giving it the whole like i mean it's no cinnabar or anything but yeah it's just yeah there was unformed chaos and the things that lived there could shapeshift because that's the only way you could live in a chaos world yes and, and then, then one someone... of them decided to make the pattern yeah one dude a guy named dworkin was like i Some think dick dworkin i think i'll make a don't please don't call him dick dworkin <laughs> i <laughs> He was like, I shall carve a pattern from this chaos, and immediately that shall be the good guys. And Noble are they. But also petty and kind of shitty. Constantly capricious, but better than chaos, I bet. Um, and then he has, he I assume, a son. I don't know if his connection to Oberon is pat- patrilinear or not. Uh, everyone comes from Dworkin that is an Amberite. Okay. So then there's this dude, King Oberon, uh, because, you know, why why be a fantasy author and think of new names when you could just crib from Shakespeare? Yeah. Um, and Oberon was much lusty and did fuck many maidens and then get sick of them and dump them on random other dimensions. And this was described as such nobility on his part. Yeah. Um, and, and then you play as, like, his grandkids. Everyone is his grandkids. Everyone likes Grandpa Oberon. Yeah, it's a weird thing where... Amberites uh, are these beings that are essentially the only real people that exist in the entire universe, multiverse, really, because the setting is the pattern only basically holds one thing. The city of Amber is Mm -hmm. like, this is actually for reals real. Yes. unchanging yeah and the forest around it the forest arden and then after that towards the, the edge of the forest it stops being real yeah the farther away from amber you go the more you get towards chaos yeah but there are all of these things called shadows that are reflections and twisted versions of reality mm-hmm. so there's an infinite number of them and anything you could imagine is there so it's a setting where you're like yeah you could go to a shadow where it's you know full dragons and princesses and then you could go to another shadow that's just cyberpunk and lasers and anything in between that you could possibly want 
it's all in there, including regular Earth, but Which, these are yeah. all shadows and not actually real, real things. I found it especially amusing in kind of a Star Trek The Next Generation vibe, where he was like, yes, only Amber and the Castle Amber and the City of Amber are real. Everything else is a grand illusion of no use to any one of uh, any true Amberite, because they'll know their walking illusion. Incidentally, all of them love Shadow Earth, specifically right around the 1900s. They love to hang out there. <laughs> And they learn a lot of stuff, and they have friends there and stuff. Like my, like my, like our their good friend, the author Roger Zelbazi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just funny to me that he's like, well, I tried to write this fantasy world where it's castles and maidens and what have you, and it's a, a step above in reality. It's realer than real. But then I got kind of unimaginative and just started writing about 1905 Paris because that's the shit I'm into. <laughs> <laughs> no, the. I mean, the thing for me is that base idea, the nugget of like, yeah, you can wander around a multiverse and basically you're a planeswalker of just, yeah, I can fuck around and go wherever I want. And eventually I'll find a very specific thing because it's infinite. You have that whole infinite monkeys and infinite typewriters somewhere they have managed to make the very specific thing that you want. Yes. Yeah. Now, um, that story focuses around a dude named Corwin, obviously one of Oberon's kids, I think direct children, not grandchildren, which is what you'd be playing. Uh, Corwin is just sort of the main character. All of the story, because they're the only people who are real, is him against chaos and also bickering and plotting against his various brothers and sisters until he decides that he shall create his own pattern in something called the Pattern Fall Wars. And then he does that and goes to that pattern. And that's where the books end. Uh, I mean, he, as far as what I had heard, there's more books with different main characters. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I just notably that as of the writing of this book, the Amber series wasn't over. Uh, there's a point in there where he says, like, I don't want to say too much about what shall happen in the future for for because this is the way the book is written for books boil up like pure crude genius from Zelizny at a pace I cannot hope to match. Uh, you like this too much. You've gone too deep. Yep, you do it. You, you got to pick something else. Write another Buffy book where you don't quite give as much of a shit. Yeah. Once you start filleting the work you're basing it on, you've gone too far. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a problem. Uh, so anyway, we should get right into it. We should start talking about character creation because there's a lot to say here. Yeah, I mean, character creation, as I had said, is pretty much the only thing that has real mechanics to it. Yeah. Because every player at the start of the game has a hundred character creation points mm -hmm. to make their character with. Now, unlike other games where you would say, oh, I have a hundred points. Well, I'll put, you know, 20 into this and 30 into that and I'll decide to buy this power. The game starts with an auction. You get a sense right away that this game was written for convention play. Well, I mean... He says right out the gate, does Wujik, he's like, yeah, I've, I made this system like way before I ever published it and I would just run it for conventions yeah, all the time. And, and it shows that this comes from a mentality of I am running a game for multiple strangers and we will play this once. So the auction mechanic works as follows. There are four stats more or less in the game. Uh, they are psyche, uh, strength, warfare, and another endurance. one. Endurance. Another one. And another one. I was technically correct. <laughs> um, 
you auction off these st- these stats in a bl- a uh, starting blind auction. So everybody writes down on a piece of paper and puts it face down and shoves towards the the uh, GM of the game an amount they are willing to bid on each one of the stats. Now you have to do this one stat at a time. Yes, in a specific order. Mm-hmm. You have to start with psyche and then go down through endurance, strength, and then warfare last. Yes, uh, warfare in this is. Both your tactical acumen, so like how good you are as a commander, and also how good you are at like sword play and things like that. Uh, made made an example by the NPC who's the best at warfare in the Corwin era of, of the descendants of Oberon, who they say you can tell he's the best general of all time because he has studied under Napoleon and Robert E. Lee. Great. Yeah. yeah why didn't you pick the winning sides, generals? He studied under them and went, wow, all right, so you guys lost. Let's see why. (laughs) Jeez, I I picked Napoleon, multiple-time loser, and Robert E. Lee, famous for being having his name removed from high schools. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The the blind bid to start, where everyone just writes down an opening bid, and then you go from there, Mm -hmm. uh, means that, you know, when you first get your opening bids. You might have people that are tied or whatever. Yeah. But from there, it's just a pure chaos auction. Real cow-style auction. Yeah, you just go like, do I hear 15? Do I hear 15? I got 15. Now, you may wonder, why? Why would you do that? And and here's the answer. This is how this game is diceless. Uh, Whoever wins the bid for Psyche is the best in the universe at Psyche. Whoever it is next in line on the bid cycle, whoever spent the second most points during the auction, is second best in the universe at Psyche. And so on and so forth, uh, all all the way on down to fourth place. And it's assumed they'll have more than four players. however many players you have that bid. Because there are also human and chaos. There's there's where you start, which is Amber, Mm -hmm. and that's... Yeah, I'm basically a demigod. Yeah, that's zero points. If you put zero points into a bid, you start automatically at amber rank. And you can get points later if you decide to drop down to uh, the mid-tier, which is chaos rank. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or you can get more points if you then drop down to the low tier, which is basic human rank. You ever want to uh, make sure your players feel like they should be scared of the villains? Definitely make it so that they get bonus points for being as weak as their villains are. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the the thing for me is when you start out if you're going to do this you of course if you want to drop any of your stats you can't bid because the second you bid you are already those points are spent yeah you can't get them back so, yeah so if you know we start the bidding and i'm like i'm gonna throw out five points and then everyone starts throwing points out there that i don't want to spend on i can't go actually I'm going to be last place in this anyway. What do I care? I probably shouldn't be spending. Doesn't matter. I've already spent them. I can't decide to not spend them. I will be technically slightly better than a regular Amber level. Yes. Um, <clears throat> so you do this, and the book gives examples of play pretty much routinely. There's there's a lot of example, very wordy, very long examples of, of play done in script format. And the auction section is no exception. Uh, it, it shows... Uh, Wusik himself running auctions for a bunch of players. I think there's like eight of them at his table. And he is 
exhorting them to spend points that they don't want to. It's it's his goal as and presumably he wants it to be your goal if you're running this game. Oh, he like basically straight comes up says out it and yeah. says like get them to waste points. Yeah. When people stop bidding, try to tell them how important this stat is yeah. and why it's the best stat for every stat. Yeah. Don't let them try and slide by without wasting all their points on this. It's If you can get them to spend 57 points to be number one in, in Psyche in the first place, then you've done the perfect job of the game by fucking all the other stats over. That's what you want. You want total nonsense. And the way that it works is not only do you go down in rank from the highest bidder down to the lowest, mm-hmm. uh, but also those are your stat break points now. So if you've got four players and the bidding happened to go 10, 20, 30, 40, mm-hmm. then the 40 points is number one best and so on. But it also means if I have the 10 points and I want to go up at least one rank, I have to go to 20. Yeah. And that's fine if you're like, oh, look, it goes, you know, 10 per level. But what's actually going to happen is a couple people don't really care. So you're like, oh, the bottom tiers are... You spend one point, you spend four points, and then someone decided they, like, two people decided to get into an argument, so the number one and number two slots are, like, 46 points and 58 points. Yeah. So, if you want to get to a little under second best, then instead of spending one or two points like you did to get up a little bit, now you have to spend another 46 just to bump yourself up. Now, here's a fun thing about the mechanic. After you go down the line and have this blind first and then cattle-style auction call for all four of the stats, uh, you, you're you done. You you know who who's in tier rank, who's the best, who's the worst at every single thing. If you didn't bid any points, you're at amber rank. Otherwise, you're at some rank slightly above amber. You do need to keep track of what every single person spent in their auction on every single one of the stats So because... Now we enter into a phase where you are allowed to secretly purchase your way up the ranks again. As John mentioned, you keep track of this. So if you're like, well, the person who was in, let's assume a party of four. The person who's in fourth place spent three points on Psyche to get themselves to fourth place. But I would like to be as good, almost, as the person in first place who spent 41 points. To do that, I need to spend 41 points, which is the difference from whatever I currently have and however much uh, they need. So if I'm at 13 and I want to get to 41, I need to spend, what, 28 points or whatever it is to to, to uh, get up to them. You'll never get up to them. If you spend the same amount as they do in this secret part of the auction or, or of the uh, character creation process, you are first and a half yes. or, or, or you're second and a half. You're, sl- you're between second place and first place now. Yes. Every time uh, the auction gives priority to people that initially paid for it. Mm-hmm. So if I'm the person who paid for first place, no one can surpass me. Yes. Uh, I am always going to be first place, but if I pay for second and people pay up to however much I paid for second, they don't get to be as good as I am either. They go down to barely third. Yeah. Uh, so the person who spends nothing in the auction... And comes out and just goes, oh, I still have all 100 of my character points. I can now decide essentially what power level I want to do, how many points, how much is it worth to get to certain levels. Yeah. And <laughs> the the way it works with that feels like it's so much better of an option because you're going to have people that are like, yeah, the bottom points are all going to be 
fairly low because there's there's going to be a few people that decided they wanted to fight over it probably. Yeah. And then everything else is fairly low and you're like, oh, I don't need to get into a bidding war for anything. I can just go up to the like highest bottom tier. Yeah. Now here's, here's the thing about this. If you want to be the second strongest or second psychiest person in the world, it's not hard to do. You just buy your way up. Now you may ask yourself one, uh, find yourself wondering why would I care about being the strongest psyche person in the world when he's like, presumably my brother and or cousin like is this game so pvp focused that that that's uh like what's narratively what is the difference between being the strongest person in the world and the second strongest person in the world universe well because there aren't any mechanics the first strongest person always wins in tests of strength yes but that would only ever come up if you fought the the first strongest person in the world when you were the second strongest person in the world yep that's the only time that would matter so there's really Amber is already stronger than every single person you're ever going to meet, except for your brothers and sisters and cousins. It's a very strange thing to have the baseline. I didn't spend any points be. Yeah, but I'm still like even better than the other godlike beings. The chaos lords are at chaos level. Yeah. And you're like baseline without spending anything. I'm already better than them. Yeah. And for the most part, I mean, at least the way that it describes things, it's not like, oh, I go to some shadow. Uh, it's a sword and sorcery shadow. Uh, there's a dragon. Okay. But is that dragon an amber level dragon? Or is it like, because it's a huge monster, does it effectively have like, a th- I'm third rank now in amber strength there's or something. a big problem here where there's a disconnect between being the strongest player character bar none and the strongest thing in the universe bar none the the way it's just it's written and described suggests that you are this during character creation specifically it's like hey if you put the maximum number of points into strength you're the strongest in the universe and and you're nothing could be, possibly best your strength but then gameplay descriptions are always like a monkey comes out of the jungle well i'm the strongest in the universe so i guess i kill it it's stronger than you it can't be literally by the definition that we we established during the auction it cannot be stronger than me it is i'm a capricious writer i mean it isn't that example is actually the whole point of this is there's hidden information so you have to be unless you are number one you have to be like all right i test the monkey monster and see i do faints to see how strong it is but even in the example it's like eventually the player goes uh, I throw the monkey. He's like, great, you throw it into the horizon. You're way better than it. It's a human-level yeah. monkey. Who gives so a the shit? Pro- the problem I'm trying to get at here is that it feels like there's quite a cluster for second best. Because that's the way they write it. They're like, well, okay, obviously, if you're first strongest thing in the universe, then sure, nothing can best you in strength. But if you're not the strongest thing in the universe, it's going to come out right away that, oh, every single monster you encounter, for some reason, is the second strongest thing in the universe, I guess. There's a lot of people vying for that number two slot. See, I don't find that to be true. What I find to be more annoying than that is... How much hidden information shit is going on here? No, let me speak. Is that... Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, once you do the whole auction thing, and you're like, yeah, we've settled how best and worst we are among ourselves. It then just goes, oh, and by the way, of course, any established character that has established to be better than you will be better than you even if you bought all the way up. Yeah. So it's like, if you go meet Oberon, Oberon's better than you, go fuck yourself. If you meet, like, whatever the fuck his name was that's the best at uh, warfare in Benedict. that book. Yeah. Okay, if you bought number one warfare and you meet Benedict, 
He's still better than you. It doesn't matter. Well, notably because if you look at his stats, he spent 253 points on Warfare. Yes. You're like, uh, can I? No, you can't. Never. Not under any circumstances. Wait till you find out how fucked up the advancement system is. <laughs> uh, okay, so once you're done with this dumb blind auction crap and buying your way up to whatever stats you'd actually like to have, obviously you might still have some points left over. That's when it's time to finish up your character creation. There are a vast array of options that you can purchase. Uh, the the majority of which are narratively bad. I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try and I'm not gonna go all out of character here and be like stupid fucking worst in the world or whatever. Just bad, mostly just bad. I mean, even the ones that you wouldn't want to get, I think, are interesting. Mm-hmm. But unless you get the ones that are specifically like, oh, I can I have narrative control over what I do. Yeah, like. It just seems to invite more of that, allow your GM to fuck with you. Yes, all of them open with, I would say, for most of the majority of the large sections of stuff that you can purchase for your character beyond this, like the powers and qualities and so on, most of them have more tech space devoted to ways that the the GM can fuck with them and mess up your character than to what they actually do. Oh, yeah. And the the thing is, with the, like, very core central to the game and the world of amber abilities things like the ability to manipulate pattern or uh logris which is i have control over chaos Mm -hmm. or trump which is magic cards i make basically tarot cards that act as magical cell phones sort of but all of these things are ridiculously expensive as well if you want base pattern manipulation it is 50 points yes base logris 40 base shape-shifting 35 uh trump i believe is also 35 points yeah it's it's the thing where you look at the auction and in the very first one in the example for psyche someone ends up paying like 54 points to be number one Mm -hmm. and at that point you look at it and go oh you can't participate in being like able to do pattern stuff period now yeah, they end up being able to do it because they dropped a human or chaos rank in some of their non-psyche stats so well, as to achieve bonus points you can also get points for bad stuff we'll get there that's that's not quite where we're at yet let's go over the 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 core types of strengths first is pattern mastery this is the ability to walk the pattern which is the thing that dworkin created just to uh, pull order out of chaos uh it is very f- both figurative and literally a pattern uh, it gives you the ability to kind of trans or, or uh, move your way across the shadow dimensions to get to where you'd like to be. It gives you a couple of other narrative powers here and there. Uh, well, it, you get to impose your will over stuff that isn't already for really real. Like you can't really walk the pattern and be like, I change Amber because Amber is already set and real. It is fixed. But if you go into a shadow and you're like, all right, I get the pattern fixed in my mind and now I can s- essentially change this because... It's just shadow stuff. It's not really real. So if I want to go, all right, I pick up a stick and turn it into a, you know, sword or whatever, you can kind of do that. Now, one thing that's worth noting before we keep going into what these various ability trees do is that gear is not really an obstacle or or a hindrance in the world of, of Amber. If you want something, you can just go out into shadow and keep walking around in shadow, looking at minor changes to transverse your way from one shadow to another until you find one that has the thing you want in it. 
It may take a day or two. Usually takes a couple hours. But if you want a purple sword that shoots dicks, there's one in the infinite universe somewhere. You just keep walking until you find it. So uh, the ability to create one using uh, pattern mastery, all it does is make it more narratively convenient for you to create all the purple swords that shoot dicks you want, as opposed to doing it the normal, easy way of just wandering around until you find one. The other very useful thing about pattern is it is just sort of stronger than chaos and also chaos both the actual like chaos stuff and chaos beings that like the chaos lords uh get absolutely fucked up if pattern comes into contact with them yeah it literally sets their blood on fire yeah so if you have the ability to fuck with a pattern and you can get it set in your mind like one all right, well, now I've got, like, pure reality set in my brain, so if someone tries to do a chaos attack against me, I'm like, lol, no. Yeah. And then if I do a pattern attack against them and they're a chaos guy, they just explode. Yeah. Now, this is probably the one that has the least amount of narrative fuckery provided, like, in the, before they even start describing the powers, where, like, this is how you can really get in there and fuck with your players. This one has the least of it because it's his favorite one, because it's the one all the heroes of his books have. Yes. Uh, so it, it doesn't have that much wrong with it. The closest thing it has to anything hard is that it points out that walking patterns is very difficult, and if you get distracted while doing it, you'll die. <laughs> you just die. And, and what defines you as distracted in the middle of the game while doing it? I don't know, GM Caprice, probably, just like everything else. So so that's that's scary. Now, the next one after that is the Logris, which is the ability to control uh, or chaos. It kind of works the opposite way that Pattern does. While Pattern lets you find a shadow that has the thing you want or pull the thing out of shadow, uh, Logris sends out tendrils of, of chaos out into the into the multiverse and searches shadows the world over until it until those chaos tendrils find the thing you want and then bring it to you. Yeah, instead of imposing your will on the shadow, you're just like, oh, I just go into the shadow and find the thing somewhere in the infinite universe. Yeah, so it's a little more wizardy because you're supposed to stand around and be like, yes, my tendrils are flowing out into creation, and I shall stay here and watch the puppets dance. Except the way that it actually works is like the wish spell from D&D yes. in that you're like, oh, the example is someone stole some like crystal ball mm -hmm. that the players wanted. And the guy with Logris goes, oh, cool. Uh, I'll go ahead and say I'm going to send my Logris tendrils out and I want a crystal ball roughly this size. Like, great, it comes back with one. It's not the one you want. It's a bowling ball. You found a bowling ball, you fucking idiot. Okay, fine, I'll try again and specify no bowling balls. You get a crystal ball, but not the crystal ball. All right, I specify specifically magical crystal balls of this shape and color and pattern, and it needs to be within this shadow. And he's like, great, everyone who is playing has already left. Yeah. Literally, he's like, you're wasting your time. You're, there's so many crystal balls in that one shadow, it's dumb. Your power is pointless. Grats on spending 40 points, idiot. Yeah, the other players in the example are like, no, I leave. Yeah. All of them just go, we're going to let you dick around with your Logris tentacles. We're going to go do stuff. This is the example of this power being used in play. It's not a cool example. It's an example of how I, I, I think he just wanted to show up an imaginary player who was doing it wrong. I mean... Most of the examples of play for things aren't, I want to show you a player who uses this to do something awesome. Basically, every single example of play is for the GM to go, hey, if your players are doing this, 
here's how you can mess with them. Yeah. But if as a player reading these, I'd be like, oh, oh, clearly nothing here is worth getting because it's all just excuses to mess with me. Yeah. So speaking of which, let's get into the next one, Trump. And guys, I can't believe I'm actually going to say this, but Trump is stupid as fuck and I hate him. I mean, it. I hate it. <laughs> uh, Trump is effectively dwarken because that mad wizard had a lot to do with his setting. One time drew up a tarot deck with a bunch of cool pictures of everything on them. Uh, and every one of them has a unicorn on the back. And maybe that's special or important. No well, one could say. The unicorn is a weird cosmic being that yeah. exists in this. Yeah. So what can you do with trump cards of the tarot deck? Uh, if you uh, you can draw, you can learn to draw them yourself. If you have the trump power, you can make them. And when you make them, you pick a thing, you draw a trump for it, and now you have a card that has a intrinsic magical or psychic or whatever you want to say connection to the physical object that it represents. Yeah, and you can do it for a place. Mm -hmm. You can do it for a person. Mm -hmm. uh, just some object, like whatever you do. You're like, okay, paint a picture of this. And then you have just a tarot card that's tied to whatever. Yeah. Now, what can you do with that? Well, you can't really influence it super directly. You can't like, it's not like a, a voodoo doll. So you can't like use it to fuck the, over the thing. You can check on what it's doing. You can kind of use it to try and scry around the object that uh, you have a trump of. You can uh, attempt to use your trump deck in general to tell the future or just scry out an answer to something, whether or not it has anything to do with the things drawn on the cards. Yeah, because it's an arcana deck. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, well, I guess you can do a tarot reading if you Literally, want to. Literally, the description, I, I, I got to assume this entire book is DM section, that he was that, that it was not meant for the player to read any of this. Because when he's like, oh, you can use it to scry the future, which is an excuse for the DM to feed you the information he'd like you to have and nothing else. Yeah. Oh, well, I want them to do this thing, so I'll probably tell them to do that thing in a scrying. And I'd be like, well, I don't want to spend 30 points for so that you can give us information that you'd have to give us even if I didn't spend 30 points. Fuck you, buddy. You figure out a way to tell us. Uh, but that's what it does. Or if you have trumps of your friends and they have trumps of you and so on, you can share them out, out among people. Now you've got interdimensional cell phones. Yeah, because a trump is tied to whatever specific thing you've drawn across any shadow into amber whatever it is and it's for that specific thing so you could be like yeah there are an infinite number of different versions of say earth yeah like right now but if i draw a trump for the jeff of this earth then only this one will be contacted by it it's not like yeah, it's any Jeff on any shadow. It's just that one. Now, and of course, most of them are for Amberites who there are not shadows of because they're actually real. Now, of course, anyone could make a trump card of anyone and try to call them. And uh, obviously, one of the things that they, disturb, they they have yet to invent in the far future of the reality beyond reality of 1990 is caller ID. So you can't just accept a, a trump call from, from at random. Who knows? It might be some monster. Um, so what the uh, the book dedicates more time to telling you how to fuck with the players rather than telling the players what they could do with this power here is don't let players use these things as cell phones. It will fuck up your game because they'll have out of character information from calling each other. Uh, even if, even if they're operating at vast distances from each other. Yeah. And for some reason, this more really than anything else. Yeah. He is like, clearly, this is too powerful. I know I've just told you about a power where you can just shape reality to your whim, but being able to call a friend, that is bullshit. So if anyone tries to call someone, just be like, oh, 
we'll get to that later maybe, and then don't let the other players have a thing and instead be like, ah, the pirate next to you is actually calling you and now he is in your mind. Literally says to every time one player tries to call another, have it be a monster or a disadvantageous person trying to take advantage of them who actually calls instead until the players stop trying to call each other. (laughs) Literally says that in the book. It, it it says, not only does it say it that way, but it also says, um, what's the solution to this problem? Trickery! Trick your players! And I, I'm like, this isn't trickery. If the, if the third time I try to call someone with the power I spent 30 points on so I could call my friends with it, or also, I guess, tell the future that you would like me to hear and nothing else, every time it happens, they get a phone call from a fucking monster instead, I'm just not going to use the power you didn't you didn't successfully trick me you just made me aware of your intentions it just you indirectly told me i shouldn't have spent points on this yes it's uh it's poorly thought out there's a lot of sections like that that are weird there's a lot of weird writing and there's a section i don't know if you caught this um we'll get actually we'll get to it in a second in fact let's move on because that's all that trump does i'm done with it i mean you can also if you have a trump of a place be like ooh, i can intrinsically go back to that place yes also if you make a trump card of another trump card you can pull one card from the other forever and make a pile of trump cards uh this is something i think he thought of while writing the book because he's just like i guess if you did this you could have a trump card that's self-referential to trump cards and you could pull out a big pile of the same trump card obviously this is super powerful so it should cost at least 15 points to know how to do which is it's very weird to me to be like yeah but i'd be like it's just a time-saving mechanic because if I wanted to make multiple of the same trump card, I could just keep painting it over and over well, again. It doesn't save any time at all. The only thing it's self-referential to is a trump card that points at the same trump card. All you can do is make a pile of trump cards that point at themselves. It's basically like playing an endless string of Uno draw two cards. <laughs> There's no point unless you want, I guess, wanted to fill a dimension with cards and choke out all the oxygen. That's the only possible point to it. It's very weird. It's a very weird thing to include. Yeah. Now, uh, one of the other things you can do for yourself, this is a minor one. I just want to mention it for one reason. Create your very own shadow. If you would like to have your own little pocket dimension that you can describe it however you would like. You can make it anything you want. Fill it with whatever you want. It's yours. It's your dimension. You own it. You discovered it. You can control it. You can invest extra points to make it hard to get into or to have your own special physics rules apply to it. But the first sentence of it, I don't know if you remember this or not, the first sentence of the section about building your own shadow You'll find yourself amazed to discover it is full of happy slaves or, at your discretion, uppity natives. Woof. (laughs) Happy slaves or uppity natives. And that is not a Zelazny quote. (laughs) Oof. Ouch. Owie. (laughs) I don't know how far back in time you have to go for that shit to fly. 1990 ain't it. (laughs) God damn. Yeah, no, I had not remembered that. That's, uh, good God. (laughs) Okay, after the Trump, uh, really, we should probably go to uh, shapeshifting. Shapeshifting costs 35 points. Oh, by the way, every one of these major ones also has an advanced version. Um, so like that it, just unlocks a more few, stuff, a few more do. things. Yeah. Shapeshifting for 35 points. You can turn into other kinds of things. Uh, you can turn into a cow or you can turn into a bat or you can turn into a thing that knows how to traverse the shadow dimensions in case you don't personally know how to do that. There's a weird thing with it where there's like, if you are 
an amberite with shape-shifting, then you have animal stuff that you can do. Mm -hmm. But if you're a chaos lord with shape-shifting, then it's... Elemental. Elemental. So you're like, oh, if I'm a chaos guy, then I can turn into, like, a lava monster... But if I'm an Amberite, then I just turn into a big lion or some shit. I mean, I kind of get it. It's a, it's the the clash between primordial and the ordered thing that is kind of the, the evolutionary stru- structure. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, ultimately, the real problem with shapeshifting, it sounds super powerful, and it should be, because you can turn yourself into things with all kinds of cool weaponry. You can be a dragon. You can fly. You can do whatever you want. Is that the first two pages of it are dedicated to telling the GM that he should be like, you've turned into a cat, and you can't figure out how to turn back. Yes. Your brain is a cat's brain now. Fuck you. You picked poorly. <laughs> because you uh, shape change, it's not magical. You've literally changed the shape of your brain, and so now it's like unto a cat, yeah. and so you've forgotten the face of your father. <laughs> I mean, I assume that's just so you, as a player, know the call and response you need to do to get through this dumb puzzle and be like, I shape change into a cat with a human brain. My human brain. It's just bolted to the back of the cat still. It's in a little bubble. <laughs> oh, well, that's going to be quite difficult. You might lose your concentration. <laughs> <laughs> no, I grow six extra brains to concentrate for me. They're all still my brain. <laughs> uh, oh, well, it seems all of your brains are now fighting. Hmm, which is the real one? <laughs> <laughs> all of them. I'm now playing six characters. Eat my entire ass. <laughs> uh, in fact, I'm going to fill this entire shadow with me's. I'm going full Agent Smith on this. <laughs> but that's that's what shapeshifting does. Yeah, and it has basic forms. They're like, you can turn into a specific thing. Uh, there is a chaos form. Yeah, uh, yeah. You have, a, you have two magic special forms. And it's like, ah, you look basically like a weird demon or whatever the fuck yeah it turns you into a, you, you have a bunch of armor and weapons and crap all over you you turn into a big demon it's your automatic combat form and you can also because this game is weird decide oh if i want to focus and specifically do shape change then i have to sit there and concentrate and it's like a oh it took me five minutes but now i have gills i'm not a fish yet Oh, that'll take a while, mm-hmm. but I at least have gills now. Yeah. But the other thing you can do if you want shapeshifting to go quickly is just turn off the safeties and let your shapeshifting do what it wants. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, then of course there's the chance that your shapeshifting just takes over. You turn into a primal fri- a fight or flight goo yeah. and just run around. Yeah, it's dumb. It's The idea is supposed to be the, the example they consistently use, because it's described a couple of times, is if you fall off a cliff. You fall off a cliff and you're like, shit, I might die. I'll go into reflexive mode and my arms will develop wing flaps and I'll land safely. But maybe upon landing, I'll turn into a terrifying beast because I took the safeties off and I'll end up being a primordial hunt monster who finds himself in another dimension finally comfortable enough to rest. Yeah, because they're like, oh, once you take the safeties off, your uh, shape-shifting will always automatically turn you into whatever is the safest thing for you to be right now yeah and also apparently overrides your brain to the point where you're like oh you have to be so safe and so comfortable 
that your mind can reassert itself. Yeah. I think, by the way, going back real quick to Trump, just because there was another weakness I want to mention. Um, when you try to make the Trump phone calls thing and he was like, don't do that. A monster might call you instead. There's a sidebar that's like, what if your players are smart? And the sidebar is your players will probably recognize that this monster call thing is a problem for them. And they'll be like, I'm not going to call you. I'll just pretend to call you. I'll just ring your phone, your Trump phone over and over again in Morse code sequence. Or I'll ring twice and then you ring twice and then I'll know that it's you and you know it's me and it's safe to call you. Well, that's that's very clever of your players. But remember, all the monsters are cleverer than them and will immediately figure out this idea. And so the reason I'm bringing that up is because I thought it'd be worth mentioning how do you know when your shape-shifting goes off the rails and this time it will work as opposed to this time it will send you to another dimension entirely where you'll wake up a week later and be like, what the fuck happened? There is no difference between the two. It's I only a week-long shape-shifting bender and I have no idea what happened. Yeah. There's no difference between a shapeshift that works correctly and a shapeshift that goes wildly off the rails and, and derails the campaign entirely beyond the GM deciding which one would be interesting this time. Yep. There's nothing you can do to make your shapeshifting safer, uh, except with the with the exce exception of the next thing we'll mention, good stuff, bad stuff. Yeah, pretty much. Mm hmm So, good stuff and bad stuff is a system in this where... For the most part, having more or less isn't a big difference. It's basically just, do you have good stuff or do you have bad stuff? Mm -hmm. But if after character creation is done, you have any points left over, you can just say, I have, you know, however many points left of good stuff. Yeah. And that just means, generically, if there's a toss-up for how things could go, or if, you know, there's the possibility of a thing that could go one way or another. If you have good stuff, things tend to go your way. Yeah. If you have bad stuff, and that's if you go into debt on things. Yes. So if you're really like, oh, man, I need to spend 35 points on this, but I only have, you know, 32. All right, I'll take three points of bad stuff. But now, if you have that same situation, bad things will happen. Yes, so it feels like it should be a good luck, bad luck slider, but it's not quite just that. It is also a universe treats you as if you are a morality of a specific bend slider. If you take a lot of bad stuff, you look evil. Yeah, people just don't like you because they can cosmically sense that you are unlucky. And it's, it's pitched as people will want bad stuff because they want to look like an edgy hard ass from the wrong side of the universe. So like, for example, in character creation, one player insists on having eight points of bad stuff, knowing that it makes him turbo unlucky. And also that everyone who sees him perceives him as a vile base villain of, of ill repute and nasty mutations and what have you. Cause he's like, yeah, that'd be cool. It'd be cool to play as a guy who everyone thinks is like an evil. Weirdo. I want to be Snape. Yeah. I want everyone to look at me and go, Oh, that guy sucks. <laughs> And the book consistently says, like, oh, if you take a lot of this bad stuff, bad things will constantly happen to you. But hey, you got extra points. You'll be able to handle it by the by dint of all the extra power you'll have. And you're like, all right, well, if you have two points of bad stuff, all kinds of unlucky shit will happen to you constantly. You'll have two extra points to spend it to uh, stave it off. And the game still remains this narrative dilettante back and forth bullshit where you'll be like well i have all these extra powers so i should be fine right nope due to caprice they don't work anyway bad things it's uh it's not great i'm gonna say the good stuff bad stuff system is bad because stuff. it's it's not like oh you have three points of bad stuff which i will spend 
in order to do whatever to like screw you over. So eventually you'll reach zero or even if you have good stuff, I'll spend that. So good things will happen to you. No, it just stays there. If I have one point of bad stuff, I may as well have had 50 because who gives a shit? The GM can just go, well, you have bad stuff. So bad things happen to you. Get fucked. I mean, realistically, there's a section in the same part where it's like, hey, even if a player takes 10 points of good stuff, they may start to try and rely over much upon luck. Fuck with them in that situation. Give them bad stuff anyway. You're like, I, why would I engage in this system? This is the worst. <laughs> this is so this bad. This entire book is, if your players attempt to do things, do not let them. Yeah. Okay, the only other section to talk about for power acquisition, uh, well, there's two more. Well, there's, there's spells. Just the minor stuff. There's minor stuff. There's spells broken down into three types. Conjuration, which is making shit. Uh, sorcery, which is specific types of spells. And uh, uh, power words, which is quick bursts of spell effects. Yeah. All of them look neat until you remember how powerful shadow and pattern manipulation is. There'll be things like Umbra, where you make everything dark for a second. Then you're like, wait, I could also just shift into a dimension where it's darker. The, I mean, the other thing is, like, especially for any time you're looking at something like, oh, sorcery, you're like, yeah, but you need to be in a dimension where magic works. Yeah. Because if I decide to walk over to, like, modern day London, oh, well, magic doesn't work here, so it doesn't matter how many points I put into sorcery. I think my favorite thing about the power words on the sorcery section is that there's a little tiny bit of extra story added by actually writing down what the power word or what the name of the spell is and so on. And some of them are really funny. Like, yeah, obvi- Umbra's darkness and so on. But my favorite is the one that's like interrupting someone else trying to cast a spell. If someone else tries to cast a spell, you yell nuggets at them and then the spell is canceled. <laughs> I mean, it's spelled Nogtiz, but I mean, come on, it's nuggets. <laughs> Honestly, going through the list of power words, I was like, this is some pinky from pinky in the brain shit. Where it's like, <laughs> someone's casting a spell. Trolls. <laughs> Nuggets. Puff. <laughs> yeah. It's just so dumb. And again, you need to be someplace where that shit's going to work for you. Speaking of, the last real section that you, of stuff you can invest in is cool equipment. You can invest in personal shadows, but also in things like artifacts and so on. You have to, because, of course, the uh, main character of all these stories has a magical sword with a Celtic name that cuts through whatever and bullshit. It's another Elric guy. So he's got, what's it, Gwerferafandir, which sets everyone's blood afire. Yeah, there's in this section, there's another one of those fuck with your players things where they're like, oh, if they want to make their like item sentient, ooh, then that item is also vulnerable to psychic attack now. And you're like, if you fucking have someone psychic attack my sword because I thought it would be cool if it could talk to me, you're an asshole. Yeah, yeah. This is the same thing. There was that Reddit story a while back where one guy, for like whatever reason, decided to be fun to have his character be like heavy set. And then ended up with the DM latching onto that as like a mechanic that needed to be punished at every turn. Was like, oh, your character's getting tired going up this hill because he's fat. Shouldn't have made him fat. That was a dumb decision. And the guy was like, I didn't get any benefit for being fat. It was just a thing I wrote on my character sheet so that he would have some character to him. Why are you doing this? And you see that here too, where they're like, oh, if you decided your sword is interesting, it is interesting to your detriment. Ugh. But the best thing about this is one thing you can do with equipment, which trumps every single other power in the game, including Trump, which is you can make it so it works locally, even if it shouldn't. Yeah, because you- they're like, oh, even if you go to a world that seems like it 
should work. You're like, oh, guns don't work here because the very specific physics reaction for gunpowder doesn't quite work the same way here. Yeah. Okay, fine. But now they're like, oh, if you want to have a wand of fireballs and spend points on it, well, now you can go into, you know, a cyberpunk world and be like, that's cool. You've got like monofilament swords and anyway, fireball. <laughs> yeah. The best weapons in the game are laser beam weapons. And no, anything does any actual damage. No, there's no scale. There's no on numbers it. or anything like that. But it does say that the best weapons in the universe are the sci-fi future weapons from sci-fi future shadows. But no one ever uses them because not that many of the shadows are sci-fi futures and they, the, the, the guns don't work anywhere else. And you're yeah, like, because the more complicated a thing becomes, the fewer shadows will actually be able to handle it. Yes. So they're like, oh, everyone uses swords because... It's real hard to get to a place where physics for a pointy bit of metal don't work. Yeah. And honestly, everyone uses swords because you're a fantasy author who thinks well, yes. the and thou are fun. And you want to live in a far off day of yonder. Whatever. Because you I get want it. your heroes to wander around and not just get shot by someone. Yeah. But the fact that the equipment gear is in, or section allows you to be like, my personal belief powers this weapon. I can take it wherever. Means the best thing you can do in this game is build a shadow, make it so it's everyone's destiny to go to that shadow, and then say, oh, by the way, I have this gun that works here and it kills anything I shoot it with because it's a crazy laser gun from the yeah, far future. I have a disintegration ray. Yeah. And I just, anyone who gets near me, I disintegrate. Yeah. And just like, it and works. Brother. <laughs> yeah. And oh, we'll take it away from you. Too bad. I spent extra points on the named and numerous quantities. So there's lots of them. I'll and just then, walk somewhere and pick one up. Yeah. Every, I, I set it so that they're in every dimension. I just going to chow on fat my way through the universe. Every flower pot has one of my laser guns in it for me, not for you. Yes. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's character creation. Now you may wonder what you do with these characters. Uh, you so does the book <laughs> you, you you get into play fights now i know that's a funny thing for us to say given that we review role-playing games and by extension every single one of them is play fights but at least there's some meat behind them here it's just uh, you are in a sword fight with a man i shall uh, attempt a, a, an attack do you wish to attempt a full attack no i shall cautiously attack he punishes your cautious attack with a total defense and riposte i'm waiting until you say the magic thing that lets this fight be over i mean the weird thing for me is the book tells you right out the gate that like, okay, if you go to some shadow and there's a human swordsman and you are an amber swordsman, like didn't even buy up. You're just baseline amber. You can walk up to them and just dispatch them with ease, mm -hmm. like zero problem. Yes. But all of the examples of player like, oh, three guardsmen have come after you. What do you do? And I'm like, well, I didn't drop down to human level warfare, so I immediately murder all of them. But that's not fun. So instead, the game is like, no, have your players go, ooh, I'll play with this one. Why, I'll faint back and let him trip while his friend comes towards me and I'll take his sword and push it somewhere else. Now, see, I'm okay if it's that. Like, if the outcome is still, if you know the outcome's a foregone conclusion, it's fine. You're just doing that to get your stunt dice. I'm used to Exalted. It's fine. Extra words mean more role-playing. Everyone knows that. That's perfectly normal. Instead, here it's, oh, well... I'm fighting the best swordsman in the world, and I'm the second best swordsman in the world. Can I win? Yes. If you send out enough verbal traps that they say something stupid, then I, the GM, shall declare you the victor, for you have described sword fighting more correctly in my esteem. Well, again, it's the answer is trickery. Yes. 
you have to be able to trick your opponent into believing that you are better than them mm-hmm. if they're better than you. Yes. And if you can, and it's funny because it's like, how do you win a sword fight with a guy? Oh, well, you go back in time and convince his family to tell them not to sword fight you. You uh, you make it so an army of user also present to attack him. You're like, this is a lot of fucking work. I don't want to play Continuum again. <laughs> I mean, there's also one of the big things in this is because every single dimension has its own physics and things like that, there are dimensions where time runs faster or slower. Mm-hmm. So you can be like, Oh, I go into the dimension where uh, time runs way faster so that I spend five months in there training and doing whatever, and it's only been an hour for you. So I come back and I'm like, oh, I've just spent five months pumping iron. I'm I'm ready to rip ass. Well, you know it doesn't what I'm matter. saying? It doesn't matter because the only thing that could possibly modify that is the advancement system. You can't actually get stronger by training. Yeah, but I can narrate that i am yeah but it won't actually affect anything if he's higher ranked than you he's still higher ranked than you when you come out your actual best bet is to go into a universe where time goes crazy slow and just wait for him to die you're like cool i'm gonna spend a week here and then it's been 50 years over there yeah either he's gotten over it or someone else killed him (laughs) (laughs) but the other thing that i want to bring up when it comes right down to it is the game really only has essentially two things for you to do yeah that matter one is fight the chaos lords because they're the only thing in the universe that are even remotely powerful enough to make an amberite go "Ooh, maybe i actually need to take this seriously or bicker with each other other amberites yeah which means the game is either you're fighting chaos lords or it's either pvp or just yes your other brothers and sisters are assholes now you're like okay i guess that's the game and the book has a giant section on you know well what does a game look like here and outside of those two it's all maybe there's an artifact they want and they have to go on an adventure to get it well part of it is that the section of what to do is entirely derived from from uh obsessive readings of the of the actual amber books so so every one of them is derived from like a minor event that occurred at some point in the history of amber so he'll be like what do you do in the game the unicorn maybe the unicorn is a psychopomp in addition to a mysterious being he could lead you to a world beyond death and i guess you could do some shit there anyway let's move on you're like wait no please finish the thought don't don't say maybe you could do some shit there just what, what's the full thought anyway the trump decks and you're just like god damn dude you got uh, the, the thing is and here's the same i'll get a little metaphysical about the game world as well what's very apparent here is that he absolutely loved this world and loved these stories and loved the idea of playing as these nascent godlike mega beings who are the only thing in the universe that's real, but he couldn't quite get out of the mindset of an 80s role-playing game. Yes, that is a very big issue. Again, because if you want to say, okay, you're an Amberite, and the ranking system only really matters for other Amberites, mm-hmm. because if you go up to a human and you have not dropped your stats down, regardless of what the test is, you will beat them. It doesn't matter. And the only way for you to be remotely threatened is overwhelming force from something like it's you versus an entire army, or like Chaos Lords or other Amberites. But most commonly, hoisted by your own petard. That's the most common way for things to go bad for you in this game is I'll try to use my shape-shifting. It goes horribly wrong! I'm gonna fuck you up. It's like, okay, well, I didn't take any powers or do anything. I'm just... I spent all my shit on being the best in stats, and now you can go fuck yourself. Yeah. 
Yeah. The but the now you can't transmit between the shadows. I don't want to. Why would I go to shadows? They're ephemeral and worthless. None of them are real. That is the other thing I wanted to bring up, which is that it gets into this real uncomfortable thing for me where the whole happy slaves or uppity natives thing is the most representative of it, of none of them matter. Yeah. Like, there's the idea in the game that, like, you could go to some Shadow Earth, genocide it, and then be like, teehee, and walk to a different planet, and it wouldn't matter because, you see, they're not really people. And once you start getting into the mindset of, well, these people aren't real people, we're real people, I'm like, ooh, ooh, no, you've gone full fascist. Oh, no. Oh, that's not good. And you can tell we're the most beautiful, important people because we're beautiful and our names are vaguely Celtic. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I don't want this. We're the real people. Everyone else is mere mud. You're like, oh, no, please don't do that. Oh. No. Oh, you've gotten into a zone that I am not comfortable with. It starts there. It's the weirdest thing. But yeah, I think the other thing I wanted to mention real quick was the section about how to die, where it's like, hey, Amberites have the hardest time dying. They are extremely long-lived. They are extremely powerful. Nothing can really threaten them. There are only three ways that an Amberite can die. Let's go over them. Number one, murder. You can Number just, one, being killed. You could just kill them. I hope no one ever discovers that little weakness. Number two, accidents. They can, like, fall off stuff and crack their head and die. You know, most deaths occur in the home. <laughs> it's so weird that you would spend all of this time talking about these godlike beings, and then they're like, yeah, but if some asshole comes up to you while you're sleeping and slits your throat, you're just dead now. Well, it's amusing to me because we get the... This is what I'm really wanted to get at this is the distillation this is a game about phenomenally powerful cosmic gods as written by someone who cannot fathom how to play that and so instead gives you DD characters yes like maybe they've got all kinds of phenomenal powers but that's a problem in DD. so you better make sure those powers don't work 80 percent of the time so they, they don't actually accomplish anything that might mess with the meta plot the problem with that in amber is i feel like this could have been a very interesting game if you took all the and now trickery parts out because if you were like what is this i have someone that can essentially manipulate reality at will and then there are other beings that can also do that and occasionally i'll you know come into contact with them and maybe have a problem but for the most part it's a game of what's a fun thing you want to do yeah did you want to go be you know a pirate in the high age of piracy. Cool. You are, you go to a reality where that's the thing. And now you are. Yeah. And Great. It you wanted to be Blackbeard, you're Blackbeard now. And as soon as that's boring, you walk away and now you're Santa Claus. Who gives a shit? Nothing can threaten you. It's fine. You can go do whatever you want. And I guess we'll just describe that to each other. And that's fine. That's the thing. This game either needs a ton more rules or none. Cause basically as written m minus all the, the trickery and caprice, what this is, is just an especially weird game of for the queen. <laughs> It's very strange. And again, like you say, the fact that you have these ridiculously powerful beings is what the game should be about mm -hmm. instead of being about how do we make sure these incredibly powerful beings aren't. Yes. Yeah. To, to really to, to, to put a cap on it before we get to the best and worst, there's a section where he goes into great detail about his favorite two characters in any game of Amber ever. And uh, their names are, I don't know, Carolan and something else. Um, Carolan. I, I, I heard it as soon as I said it. I think it's supposed to be Carolan. Um, 
Uh, but but anyway, this Carolan character is the one I want to focus on because the two of them, one of them took a lot of good stuff. The other one took a lot of bad stuff. Carolan was the one who took a lot of good stuff. He's an innocent naive in a world that, that would see him done wrong because he is so upstanding and so paladin-y. He says this is a, a character who was played by a friend of his, the person who did the cover art for the book, in fact. Um, and uh, he's like, and I loved that he was such an innocent because I did everything mean you could do to this guy i abused his trust i manipulated him emotionally i killed every npc he liked right in front of him and forced him to wallow in the guilt of it at one point he came to me and confessed that he hated the game they didn't even like playing it anymore he was like what's the point none of this is any fun i'm having a terrible time and that is when i knew i was running the game correctly <laughs> and that's when i knew i had won the role-playing game yeah literally he's like this is the greatest character ever because the player hated it yeah and that is the most john wick bullshit you can imagine when you're like oh what's winning for the gm oh making your players absolutely miserable that's how you well, win but you imagine a win state where you're like how do i win at this game my players finally admit to me openly that this isn't fun yeah and now i know i've done it right <laughs> i mean there's supposed to be a finish to the story where he's like but he worked through the pain and he came out the other side and finished the story triumphant and i'm like i I guess maybe if you're the kind of person who's like goes to retreats where you walk on hot coals or whatever, great. But but if there's a point for me at any point at all where the game's not fun, I'm done. Oh, yeah. Even if it's my friend running it, if at some point I'm like, hey, I'm literally not just not having fun, but actively dread playing this. I'm not playing this anymore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have better ways to spend my time. Yeah. I don't need to torture myself for however many hours a week just so you can decide you like being capricious. And more to the point, I don't want, I don't even want to read a story in which you proud, pridefully describe emotional abuse. Yeah. I don't want you to be like, look what I did. It's great. I manipulated him with trickery and lies. And I'm like, you, you fucked up. Yeah, you, you unfortunately, fuck. that's the entire thing of this book is hide all information you possibly can from your players to make them paranoid at all times, mm -hmm. because that's the only mechanic, because if there was full transparency, then it would just be, oh, I know I can or can't win. And there's no mastery to be achieved. You can't suss out. The only thing you can do is learn to read the DM. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the best thing you can do is, I guess I'll get first place in something and then rely on that but then it doesn't matter because the GM will get the rock to my scissors and go, ha ha, you're the best at Psyche, but this guy punches you in the dick. Well, notably, they keep there's one thing that constantly comes out throughout the book, which is the conflict between war or warfare and strength, because both of them can be used to fight someone in combat. One of them is swords. The other one is like wrestling. So they're like, well, if you go up against someone who's number one in warfare, but you're number one in strength, you could just kind of wade through their sword strikes and crack their neck, I guess. Yeah. You'll take some damage, but it's hard to kill an Amberite. And you're like, why would I invest in number one in anything when number one in every other thing can just come over and kill me? And it just and comes that's down the to auction who, system is just, why you're <laughs> supposed to pay so much for everything and not have any points left. Yeah. Except that it won't matter because you're like, oh, I'm number one in psyche. I can kill you with my wizard brain. 
Uh, I ignore your spells because I'm describing it effectively, well, it and I walk over there and crack your fucking neck. Well, no, the whole thing is, oh, well, it takes you three minutes to do anything with Psyche, so yeah. while you're doing that, I stab you. I'm the greatest sword fighter in the world. I'm super strong. I have ultra endurance and strength, so I endure your blows and walk over there and crack your neck. You invested a lot of points like an idiot. You did nothing. Except it isn't that. It's not rock, paper, scissors. It could be I'm the strongest person in the world. Well, I'm the best at swords. I win the sword fight, and it really just comes down to who the DM happens to agree with in that moment. Pretty much. Yeah. So best and worst. Let's do it. John, what's your favorite thing about this game? My favorite thing about this game is the the base idea of being a cool multidimensional walker. Yeah. Like the idea of being someone that walks through these shadows and is like, oh, I can, you know, if I walk then I can just change little bits around the scenery and like fine tune what I want and I can go anywhere. I can do anything. That's such an interesting starting point for a game. Mm -hmm. It's very sad that it didn't go anywhere, but it's a very interesting starting point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about you? What's your favorite thing? I'm more or less in agreement here. I thought some of the neat description, I mean, ultimately my favorite stuff in this game is the parts where the actual books that it's based on shine through. And I'm like, oh, neat. That's kind of a cool concept. Like the hell ride where the difference between walking shadow and hell riding shadow, for example, hell riding is faster. Walking is slower, but more dependable. When you're, when you're walking from shadow to shadow, you pick one thing, you introduce it to the environment. So you're like, well, I'm walking down a road to forest and then there's a lime tree in the forest and then there's more lime trees in the forest and then half an hour later there's even more lime trees in the forest and finally i'm in a lime tree forest and that's finally i'm a lime i'm uh, sir isaac lime at last that's that's pattern walking is very slowly changing your environment and there are endless descriptions in the book of the dm being like that's not good enough pattern walking i want to hear smaller details i want this to go on longer hell riding on the other hand is picking one fixed thing in the environment and changing everything else yeah so you go like uh I'll, oh there's a lime tree over there i'll i'll uh i'll change it so that this is a world that still has a lime tree but everything else is different now yes that's hell riding it's faster but more dangerous um Concepts like that, I find completely fascinating. Execution, I do not find fascinating. Yes. Your least favorite thing? Oh, it's the auction. Obviously, it's the auction because it's right out of the gate knowing, oh, fuck this. Mm -hmm. And also, I had the very first time I read through the auction section went, oh, well, this is clearly someone that only really wanted to run this for conventions and did not ever have in mind, like, for buddies that want to play because the second you know the auction rules the four people get together and go hey i'm gonna bid one point on strength everyone else bids zero you can have psyche for one point you can have endurance you can have warfare and then being the best in like ranked number one will cost one point and I'll be number one, and everyone else will be number 1.5. Yeah, because you'll just, at the at, during the secret stat gain section, invest one point in all the stats you currently invested zero points in, and now you're the best at one thing, and the second best in the universe at everything else. Yeah, you've spent four total points. Now you have 96 to invest in, you know, a flamethrower that works everywhere, and a jetpack, and your own special uppity native shadow. Now, you may be wondering to yourself what stops people from doing that, and it's literally... Uh, the DM trying to play the players against each other. 
The, the GM's job is to be like, no, you don't want to let him be the strongest, do you? Don't you want to be the strongest? And the again, that breaks down the second you have four players that are friends and know each other and go, no, nah, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is that, that the idea that this game entirely relies on the DM manipulating you from the moment you write down a number on a piece of paper at the it's very the beginning of the game is the least, the, the worst thing. So that's that, that right there. That's. Yeah, I'm right with you. The goddamn auction rules. And it's one of the first things it tells you. And the second I finished it, I went, oh, it's one of these books. It's one of those books where everything is, how can I screw my players? And then it turned out, yes, it is. Yeah. And I'm going to take the same thing, but I'm going to go over to the power section and say, like, every time they're like, hey, this power can do some neat stuff. Don't let it. Oh, that, that's the worst. I mean, I'd probably say Logris. The examples are the worst. <laughs> yeah, Logris and Trump, I think, are the worst, too, for me. Because Logris, all the examples are of it failing, and yeah. everyone else calling the person who did it an idiot. Yeah. Oh, what's the example? Oh, it failed. And also, here's a sidebar that says, if you invested in this power, you'll blow up if someone uses pattern on you. Anyway, good thing you invested 40 points. Yeah. And then Trump, which starts with, like, hey, if anyone tries to use this for its intended function, make sure it doesn't work. Yeah. So terrible. Yes. Yeah, so that's my. Would you play this? no i couldn't i couldn't do it because i'd rather just do an improv exercise than try and deal with the inherent hidden information and trickery that essentially amber requires you to have in order for there to be a game like it's not just like when we read some old rpgs and it's got that adversarial dm nature mm-hmm it's like a quintessential part of the game. It is necessary that you hide information and use trickery in order for there to be a game. Heck, during the advancement section, which I didn't even get to, I'll, I'll briefly talk about that before we, we cut out for the day, but uh, during the advancement section, the one player in the example who didn't bid on any of the points during the auction, everyone's calling him a conniving asshole because they have no idea what his current stats are because that part is secret. Yeah, advancement is secret. So, Not just advancement, but post-auction stat buys are secret. Yeah. Anything that you do past the auction, any advancement, and that includes buying powers, mm -hmm. uh, upping your stats, getting anything at all. If I manage to get my own shadow or my own weapon, none of that is known to anyone unless I want to tell them. And of course, the book goes out of their way like, well, you could tell this other Amberite that you have a special super weapon. But then they'll know. Yeah, and on the one hand, you think, oh my gosh, is that ever designed to encourage PvP gameplay? But it's not, because the thing is, they're like, never tell anyone anything, because shapeshifting is so common that 99% of the time you think you're talking to your friend, you're talking to a secret chaos monster. Like, it's... no, I'm not. I only am if... This game, you know that, that Quantum Bears thing from the internet? Ah! This game is Quantum Bears. This is literal quantum bears. Anytime you try to use your powers, the most disadvantageous situation ever possible immediately happens. You can create a disaster by trying to play this game. Yeah. No, not a fan. Yeah. I also would not play this. D to talk about advancement real quick, it's another fucking secret thing. You write down on a piece of paper the things you would like in advancement. In the it, order that it is important. Yes, and by priority order, and also how much bad stuff you're willing to take. And then... The DM, who does not tell you how many points you get, does not tell you how many points he'll charge you for anything, and doesn't tell you how well you've done recently or anything like that, will go down each list individually and go, hmm, I'm willing to grant you this, but I only would have granted you this if you had been willing to accept two bad stuff in exchange for it. 
but you can't go back and say, sure, I'll take that now. Yeah. Because you should have said it when you started it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is because it's entirely a hidden information game. And I, I don't like that. Oh, by the way, there is one more way to earn bonus points in this game which is volunteering to do stuff for the DM, a GM. Oh, yeah. It's, I forgot if, that. If you journal or you make a, like maps or you do whatever. If you're willing to draw pictures of the game, you, yeah. you can have some bonus points, but you have to do it. You have to promise to do it. If you do busy work, then you can get some bonus points. And notably, nothing anyone does actually matters. It's like a one person's job was it, it, like got 10 bonus points in the character creation examples for recording every game session for posterity. Yeah. It's like, oh, they took the minutes of the game session and they got 10 points for it. Another one got 10 points for writing poems about each game. Yeah. No, it's it's very weird. Yes. Uh, I, I it basically tries to sell you that the DM does a lot of hard work. So this is a way the players can contribute by doing some work in exchange for some bonus points to get them to do it. And I'm like, I'm like, think, to myself, all I can think is, wow, that's a, a fundamental misunderstanding of basic game design. The player should want to help the DM play because it's fun. Well, yeah. If you're like, oh, I'm going to create art for my game because I like my game and I like the characters and I want to draw them, it shouldn't be, all right, well, I guess I'll make some fucking drawings because that gets me 10 points. Yeah. It's a fundamental misunderstanding, and it, it goes beyond it. It basically plays into that old notion that the DM is not a player at the table. They're something else, and that's something I would love to disabuse the world of. The, the Everyone at the table is a player. Yeah. Especially me. <laughs> oh, well, I'm not a player. I just fuck a lot. <laughs> okay, so um, with that all done, I think it's time to briefly talk about where you can find us and how you can support us, and then we can be done. Sure, great. Patreon.com slash system mastery. And we're done. And we're done. <laughs> <laughs>